In episode 73 of MobyCast, we start a new series on encryption and dive into the essentials. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about cloud-native development, AWS, and building distributed systems. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Chris and Rich. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Yeah, great to have you back. So, Chris, what have you been up to this week? Well, as I think I've mentioned several times on the podcast, I am a cycling nut. And uh, oh, the month. No spoilers, please. I'm like a couple of days behind. <laughs> oh, come <laughs> on. Okay, fine. So I'm be serious. it. I'm serious. I'm serious. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, it, let me just say it will not disappoint as far as like just drama. Okay, um, I'm excited. We'll, we'll, we'll put it that way. It's kind of amazing just the last few days. I'm almost done with stage 18. They're about to start up the Galibier. So that's where I'm Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So July is definitely the the month of Tour de France. And so our children, my wife is equally a a cycling nut, at least when it comes to following the the, the pro peloton. So during July, we joke that our kids become tour orphans because <laughs> I mean, it, it's 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 quite a bit of commitment. To, it's you know four or five hours of coverage every day. So we're done. Except we we actually are behind on the the, the final stage on the, the Champs Elysees. They, by the way, we we got we subscribed to Directv to watch this this year. So you just do it all over the inner tubes. Mm-hmm. Don't have to, you know, go have cable installed or, or get a get a slot out of the dish. But the software is just absolutely horrible. And they keep saying it's in they say it's 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 in beta, but it was in beta last year when we got it. It's just awful and terrible. We've had so many snafus this this month with with trying to record it and it dropping recordings and not recording things. Or they and NBCSN, for some reason, on yesterday's stage, the last stage, they decided to switch channels midway through. So oh my God. Because we set up our DVR, right? We we got like, so we're watching it. We think we have the whole stage. Uh. And then and then it's like, no, it's missing the last hour. They're like, oh, alert, switch over to NBC um, oh to God. see the rest of it. And it's like, but we DVR'd it. <laughs> oh, that's so terrible. So, so anyhow. Well, it's only going to get worse probably because I think a lot of the DirecTV developers are in Denver and there's a new shiny thing in town for them to go work for named Slack. (laughs) Yeah, well, we're we're done with it. I'm canceling today. (laughs) How about you, Rich? What are you up to? Oh, man. We've been busier than we've ever been. And so the idea of project portfolio management is becoming pretty important. And what that is, is, and I didn't really know what that was until a couple months ago, is, is like the bird's eye view of all projects. So the idea of using Gantt charts and trying to figure out how you can jigsaw puzzle human resources so that you can layer projects in um, creative ways that you can get more done. So trying to figure that out, which has been challenging because I don't have any experience with like project management. So I'm learning as I go. But I mean, it's I think I'm, I'm you know, we're not we're not at a point where it's already a problem. So I'm sort of like doing this ahead of time. But Nonetheless, it's uh, it's challenging to sort of like put that hat on and be effective when you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, you and I have talked a little bit about it and I'm excited to see your journey. 
Yeah. So, oh, and I just have a quick story too. I had to get a new file cabinet and I saw, I had bought one on Amazon, which don't do it because I spent like $250 and some freight company came and dumped like a totally dented piece of trash on my lawn. And I had to let it sit there for another month while I waited for the freight company to come back and get it. So do not do that. You could have taken it to Whole Foods. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Simply drive over a mountain pass to get to Whole Foods. Anyway. <laughs> Yesterday, I saw one on classifieds and it was 75 bucks. And I went down there and I met the guy in this fancy neighborhood called Cordillera to pick it up. And I was like, this is really seeming like a good deal. And I walked up to it. He had it in his driveway. I walked up to it proprietarily, looking like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to buy this opening drawers. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why my wife put this up for sale. I asked her and she said, well, it doesn't have any files in it. And I was like, but you're putting it up for $75? And he goes, that thing costs $1,300. <laughs> so I was like, oh, maybe I should be a little bit more polite and think thankful and not just like, yep, I'm taking it. Was it plated in 18 karat gold? No, but it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's pretty fancy. Honestly, it's solid wood file cabinet. It's pretty fancy. So I'm excited. I just got it moved into my office. But that's not what we're talking about today. Let's talk about encryption. Everybody depends on it. Everybody talks about it all the time. And I think it's one, one of those things that's not very well understood. I was just having a conversation with one of our clients over at Zupix the other day, just trying to talk. We're implementing this new direct messaging feature, and we want to make sure it's really locked down. And we were talking about the difference between end-to-end -end encryption and just making sure things are encrypted at rest and in transit. And it was quite an explain. It was, it was a lot to talk about and, and make sure that my client, who's not a developer, who's a business person, was able to understand and make decisions around because this affects his budget and the company's budget, and they want to spend their budget wisely. And the people listening to the podcast, I think you probably know a bit more about encryption maybe than than my client, but there's so much to it and, it, and it's so fascinating that I think we should get into it and talk a little more in detail. Do you want to kick us off, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, encryption is one of those things we just kind of take for granted. It's just, it's there. It's kind of underpin so many things that we use like the web like, like mm -hmm. we know that things like https is like pretty important whenever we're we're transmitting anything that's sensitive information whether it be credit card information or social security numbers or whatnot and so we know i mean like encryption is it definitely is is just so important we know it needs to happen and but for the most part i think it's it's a bit of a black box for most people like how does it really work? And what are the different types of encryption? And so that's what we're going to talk about today is just we're going to kick it off with, this is going to be a multi-part episodes on, on encryption. But to start off with, we're just going to talk about just the essentials of encryption. You know, what is it? What does it mean? Encryption in REST versus transit, the various types, the major types of encryption and how they work. So hopefully it's going to be pretty, pretty interesting and, and uh, kind of fill in some of the, the gaps that folks have out there about just like what is encryption and how does it work and which type should I use? You know, when I was in college, I remember there was sort of a, a demand among my peers in, in our computer science classes. There was a demand. Everybody was interested in it. I can't remember which class it was where I was introduced. I remember Don Rager, the professor, was the one that taught us and he taught us um, public key encryption and how it worked. And I remember he said stuff like you can't you know, do not share what I'm putting on this board with anyone because I've I've just written down a you know something that would be illegal if you were to go share it with certain other people. And I was, we were all like, whoa, this is cool. 
And I think the reason was because it's it's got this reputation of being hardcore. Like uh, this, when you're doing encryption, that's when you're starting to get hardcore with computer programming. Would you agree, Chris? Well, what I, what I would agree is that the actual cryptographic algorithms are intensely hardcore. I mean, mm-hmm. it is it is math at its purest, mm-hmm. and it's it's incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. People do their PhDs on. I mean, it's just it's it is very very difficult because it's it's you're, you're you're trying to come up with an algorithm that is going to be very very difficult to reverse engineer to crack right mm-hmm. and you know given how fast computers are evolving and you know things like moore's law and transaction you know the ability to how many operations per second computers can do you know it's it's up to the algorithms to become more complicated and to have more entropy in them and to, you know, the data, it, slight changes in data. Like if you want your cryptic, cryptographic algorithm to have like big changes on the output, right? Like you don't want to be able to find patterns in it. So coming in, so, so having a really good, strong cryptographic algorithm is like very hardcore, Right. Mm-hmm. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you need the PhD in math and it's teams of people. And like, this is like weapon, like, the, like weapon yeah, level quality. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is government. Stuff. Yeah. National security. Yeah. Right. So governments put lots and lots of I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars behind this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. But the good thing is, is that we don't have to like the, the normal, you know, people using encryption don't have to know the exact details and, and, and the proofs behind them. Um, right. right. We can, we can pop up a level or two. Well, and I think it, it may be instructive, especially for anybody that's kind of newer listening, is that, so I remember seeing an NSA catalog in the in the computer science office at, at my college. And I think if I had seen that thing before I learned the cryptographic algorithms, I probably, I might've been like, whoa, cool, NSA, super cool, cryptography, yes, I want that. And I might've applied. But fortunately, I saw the magazine, you know, the pamphlet after we learned the cryptographic algorithms. And, and just, I remember learning them and being like, yeah, but I don't think I could spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking about that. <laughs> it's, it, it took all that that excitement, that that sheen, that eight, that super secret agent 007 away from it, right? Right, right. Yeah. So, um, but using this stuff is not that hard, as you just said, and it's so important. So, let's talk not about how the algorithms themselves work, but rather. Yeah, the practical the practical use of this stuff because that is not only not hard but absolutely expected and important. Right, exactly. Yeah. So maybe just starting off, just like with the definition, right? Like, what is you know encryption? What is it? And you know, really quite simply, it's the process of of taking some plain text and you convert it to something that looks like gibberish, right? It's it's cipher text. So you're just transforming your information that you want to be kept secret into something that is bears no resemblance to what it originally was, right? And that, so that we call that ciphertext. You know, some of these um, encryption methods require a key, and that's kind of key <laughs> to the whole encryption algorithm, right? It's, 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 a, it's a secret that's known that's part of that transformation function to, taint, to, to change that plain text into ciphertext. And, you know, use cases for encryption are are many, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it kind of boils down to you have information that's sensitive and you don't want you don't want other parties that shouldn't be able to see it, be able to, to understand it. So, you know, cryptography kind of has been going on for thousands of years, right? And in, in, in various forms, and it's been, you know, when, again, people 
governments, civilizations have secrets that they they want to keep within their ranks and they don't want to share it with others. So whether it be a, you know, a, a codex or, you know, like the example of World War II, the kind of trying to send communications amongst the different armies, you know, so England trying to crack the, the, trans, the, the transmissions from Germany and, and vice versa. And like this has been going on for a really long time. So that core use case of I need to basically make this, this message secret so that other people only, you know, the people that I want to be able to decode it can is at the, is at the core of it. So just about everything we do today, you know, has use cases for this, whether it be again, like we're sending our credit card information over the, over the internet, whether we um, storing sensitive data on a database server, we want to have secure communications um, point to point between ourselves and someone else. So Things like WhatsApp, that's one of its big features. It's, it's encrypted communication between users. The, the WhatsApp servers don't even know, can't even read the messages. Um, it's only the, the recipients that can read it. And I think it's bare saying that even stuff that doesn't seem to need to be encrypted really should be these days. Almost, It's like encrypt all the things. And the reason you should encrypt all the things is because you know, bad actors, whoever they might be, are able to, to tell so much from context now that if you just encrypt everything, then they can't really tell anything. So even if all you're doing is looking at cheese making recipes, hey, put them on HTTPS. That way, you know, whatever bad actor might need to know something about you can't use the fact that you were looking at cheese making re- recipes the day before as, as a way of kind of triangulating what you're up to. Mm-hmm. So encrypt it, all the it, things. It, yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds silly, right? But it's like with with machine learning and AI, like patterns and so. I mean, it's like that actually yeah. that context can actually end up becoming kind of useful and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, and I think you know, in in the past, we didn't necessarily encrypt all the things just because there was such a performance penalty to it, and it was also mm-hmm. a lot a lot more difficult. But now it's just it's so simple to do, it's so easy, and there really is very negligible in the way of performance. So. In fact, you're seeing the most of the major browsers now are moving to the point where they're kind of requiring that communication. The the web traffic is over TLS; it's it's secure, and they're showing warnings if it's not over secure port. So you know, encrypt encrypt all the things. Werner Vogel's CTO for AWS is kind of famous for coining the phrase dance like no one is watching, but encrypt like everyone is, <laughs> which is which is a good one. Yeah. All right, so I guess we're going to talk about three different types of encryption now, starting with hashing. Yeah, may, may, maybe before we get into that, why don't we talk a little bit about just oh, yes. where yes. where to encrypt, right? And mm-hmm. so this is where things, terms like in, encrypt in transit and encryption at rest come into play. And like, it just, it kind of makes sense, I think, just to talk about those two things in general. So, and it really kind of boils down to like, again, what is it that you need to secure and when are you going to use one or the other? So encryption at rest, you know, quite simply just means it's it's data that's encrypted at where it's stored. So it's wherever it's persisted. So whether it be in a database or a file system or whatnot, it gets encrypted before it's actually persisted. And so that in its restful state, it's encrypted. And then when something wants to, to read it, it reads the encrypted data and then decrypts it to now get to, to now be able to inspect that data right so that's encryption mm-hmm. at rest and so again anything that you're persisting you're storing like in a database so it could be like uh, you're so you're you're storing credit card numbers in a in a postgres table right those need to be encrypted um, or it could be just 
encrypting, you know, cute pictures of pets and things that people say about them, which is what we do on Zupix. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, again, encryption at rest is one of those things that in the past was much more complicated and expensive. And now in, in the cloud native world, it's it's one of those things where literally it's a checkbox option. And it's like, why not do it? And people um, get Twitter pylons if the checkbox isn't automatically selected. Yes. And then, so then we have encryption in transit. So this is just the data is moving, right? So it's going from point A to point B. And as it travels from point A to point B, it's encrypted. So this is really to protect against things like eavesdropping. And, you know, whenever you're commuting, like anything over the internet, any kind of traffic, right? It's like you do not have a direct pipe from your machine to whoever's machine it is you're talking to. You're going through many, many hops along the way. Um, and you're going through many different servers and routers and whatnot, right? So there's always the possibility for, for eavesdropping there. There's also the possibility for folks to spoof destinations um, and to, and to uh, kind of redirect traffic. So, so because of that, encryption becomes really important when you need to you know, protect that. So encryption in transit is just the data is moving. It's going from point A to point B. And as it does, it, before it gets sent over the wire, it gets encrypted. And then the receiving end, when they receive it, they can then decrypt it and read it and make sure that only the, reci- the recipient has the ability to decrypt. So that's encryption in transit. Great. Now we're going to talk about types of encryption and, and you can tell us about how. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about three, three kind of main, main topics here. So the first would be hashing. Definitely. This is one of those core foundational aspects of, of encryption, but it's not encryption necessarily in and of itself. Right. So hashing is really, it's a, it's an algorithm that given an input, so the thing that it is that you want to protect, you pass it through this hash algorithm, and it and it gives and it outputs some obvious, obfuscated hashed value, right? Or 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 sometimes called a digest. And so it's it's a, it's a one way function, right? So the same input to this function will always produce the same hash. And but because it is one way, it's it's impossible to do the reverse. Right. You can't given just the hash value, you can't go back, you know, the up the opposite direction to recover to, to get to the original data. So it's a it's it's a one-way function. And then also a, a good hashing function will giving the the particular hash value or a digest, it's gonna be infeasible to create another string that would produce that same hash value, right? And so that's called a collision. So that's that's kind of a common term that people may have heard, like hash collision. Mm-hmm. Or whatnot, and so that's really just where you have two different keys or input strings that produce the same hash value. That would be a collision, right? And that's bad. And so a good hash function will make it make that very much infeasible. That it's the likelihood of that happening is just very, 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 very low, right? Right. I guess that's the that, that is important though. It it definitely definitely does happen, and and I think even the best hashing functions have. On for any given hash, there's infinitely many ways to make a collision, but it's just really unlikely, mm-hmm. right? Like because there's infinite potential data inputs, and so you can keep trying them and trying them until you get another another one that produces the same value. Because mm-hmm. the values themselves are not infinite. Like there's there they may be thirty, you know, thirty six letters or or thirty. I don't even know what to call them, but they may be thirty six long or forty eight characters long. 
And so there's only so many of those, but there's infinite possible inputs. So therefore there are, for each one of the potential outputs, there are infinitely many ways of achieving it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly. And, and I think that the important thing with these hash algorithms is, is usually the way that, and when these are used in practice, what, what ends up becoming kind of important is just the actual hash digest itself. That's what's used to figure out whether or not like this is the, the correct value that you, that you want. Like that is the, the secret, right? So the, the hash algorithm gets, gets applied by, by two different parties and if they mm -hmm. come into the same result, right? So, yeah, that's really it, what it's for. Is like, can I trust that this thing is the same as this other thing? Mm -hmm. So, if you do have a collision, then that kind of that, that's that's a really bad thing, right? Because it means there's you don't need to even know the secret, right? To be now where the other side thinks that you do know it. And so, again, a good example would be a password. I mean, if you imagine if you had a really bad hashing algorithm for your passwords. And if I type in my password is foo and someone else tries to guess it and guesses bar and it turns out that foo and bar both hash to the same thing, then the server is just going to say, oh, you have the correct password. Right. They don't. Right. But the hash value was the same. So that's that would be an example of a collision. And, and that would be wrong. And that's a really obviously simplistic. That when, we I don't think about, do. when I think about hashes, I always think about the, the graph of the function. I think about like the x-axis as it goes along, those are all the different potential inputs. So from zero to infinity of inputs. And the y is like the, the hash that comes out of it. And I just I just imagine this like almost solid thick line because every single, every time you move, you know, one increment down the x-axis, your output value is way different than the one that was right before it. So it's just like this, like up and down, up and down, up and down, mm -hmm. all, over the, all over the place. Function. You should not be able to plot a curve. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so that's what I think about. I don't know if that helps anybody that thinks in terms of math, but I think about that. Yeah, complete entropy is really what you're what you're going for here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, some some examples of hash algorithms are SHA, um, SHA, MD5. And then Bcrypt is a specific hash algorithm that's specifically designed for password hashing. And so Bcrypt is something that, you know, as developers, we should be, most developers, I think, are pretty pretty familiar with, with Bcrypt. And especially if you're dealing with passwords and storing passwords and whatnot. So that is a, a hash hashing function. It's based on the Blowfish cipher. And it also incorporates a salt into it. And the salt is incorporated to protect against brute force hacking. And so this is, this is, again, kind of interesting. First of all, I mean, think about all the different security attacks and hacks that we've heard about even over the last like five years. And so you have the really bad ones where services, they store passwords in clear text Right, which mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, like come like that's kind of really hard to understand. But then you have systems where they stored they hash the passwords, but they weren't salted, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think really famous is LinkedIn. So the LinkedIn password hack, I think it was in 2012, 
they stored their passwords as hashed values, but it wasn't salted. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so just, this, uh, I want to just explain what that means. Like, say, so the input value, I guess you've been calling that the key. So, say it's geranium or pizza dough to every single one of those input values before hashing it, they'll add like XYZ or one, two, three, four, just some salt, some few extra characters. And then they'll add those one, two, three, four to the end of geranium and then hash it. And then so, when a, when a person types in their password, they type in geranium. Again, to make sure it's the right password, the system will add one, two, three, four, that same salt to it, hash it, and see if it's the same as what it was stored earlier. So that's what salt is. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the if you don't do this, what it means, so the, imagine we're just using like the bcrypt algorithm. We're not giving it any salt. Let's just say it's not, we're not using salt for whatever reason. So we think we're doing the right thing. We're using bcrypt or we're encrypting these, pa- we're, we're hashing these passwords and storing the hash values. They type in geranium. It generates the gobbledygook. We think we're doing well. And that's all fine and good until someone else, if they, the bcrypt either, it's well known, anyone can use it, right? So what they can do is, the, and this is the rainbow table um, attack, right? So really what it is, is just a lookup table. So you just go through and, just start picking passwords. You run them through the bcrypt algorithm. You now have the hash value. And now all you have to do is if you've got a, a dump of hash values that represent passwords, you just use your lookup table. And once you find a match, now you know what the actual password is, right? Because there was it's just the same algorithm. Mm-hmm. And so that is a, a rainbow table attack. And that's what led to the to the issue with with like the LinkedIn problem back in back in 2012. So salt is basically it's an extra secret that's applied to the algorithm that's very specific to that particular service or application that and it has to guard that very closely, right? Like that ends up becoming the actual true secret here. It's a it really is like a, for the, for all intents and purposes it is the key in that particular case. And so without that then with that salt, it's basically gen- it's it's a new rainbow table, right? And so, unless you know that specific key, you're not going to be able to do that same kind of brute force password attack. So, so always salt with your right, with right. your with your hashing with with, uh, with that. Yeah, as tempted as I am to go into it, I won't. But I'll just sort of leave listeners with just the, also that hashing cryptography is what's used for blockchain as well. So this thing that we just ex- explained is, is kind of at the core of how blockchain works and Bitcoin and all that. Hey, this is Rich. Please pardon this quick interruption. We recently passed an internal milestone of 50,000 listens, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for the support. I was also hoping to encourage you to head over to iTunes and leave us a review and or a rating. Positive feedback and constructive criticism are both incredibly important to us. So give us an idea of how we're doing, and we'll promise to keep publishing new episodes every week. Okay, let's dive back in. And so kind of really interesting, too, with Bcrypt. Bcrypt actually, the the standard allows for, it's an adaptive function. And so as part of the algorithm, you can tell it how many iterations it needs to go through to compute the actual hash value. Mm. And so they do this so that you can make it slower as computers get faster, mm, right? Nice. So it, it makes it more resistant to the brute force search set. So kind of similar to like what, how Bitcoin works, right? You can just make the algorithm more 
computationally complex as mm-hmm. needed as computers get faster and faster. Ah, super interesting. Yeah, that was something I learned the other day as well. <laughs> cool. All right, should we talk about symmetric key encryption? Yeah, so, so now we can get on to like to the basically the two main encryption mechanisms. So there's symmetric and then there's public key, which is also known as asymmetric, right? So let's first talk with symmetric. So with symmetric key encryption, you have a single key, right? So it's the same key is used to both encrypt and to decrypt the data, right? So, which means that in order for secure communication to happen between two parties, both parties have to know that same key. So lots of different algorithms out there that use symmetric key encryption. So things like AES, triple DES, Blowfish, RC4, Everything was symmetric. Everything that you could decrypt was symmetric key encryption before the invention of public key encryption, right? Like yes, secret decoder rings, everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, going back to like you know the back in World War II, the when the Germans were encoding their messages, they were creating a, a key every. They, were, they had a daily key. They rotated their key daily, but it's symmetric key, right? So they had to have a way of, of all parties ne- needing to know what that key was, and as long as you had that had that key. You could then decrypt the message, and then they would rotate it every day. But, but yeah, absolutely. For symmetric key was was the way to go. Was the only thing really up until the early seventies, I think, when came up with a with a more secure way of when you when you have to so that you don't have to share one single key, which again has has its limitations, and we can talk about that a little bit more. Do you know anything, like anything that you can share? I don't want to get too mathy, but like, you know, you mentioned 3DS, AES, Blowfish. Those are ones we've heard of. Do you know anything about generally how, like kind of like a high level, what the math is doing? Again, at, at the very highest level, it's it's a function, right? It's like you have an input, you have some algorithm that translates it to an output. It's, it's very similar to like what we talked about with hashing. So you want to have the most entropy mm-hmm. possible so that you can't, there's not patterns there. They, they refer, you refer to these algorithms as being spongy, it's sponginess of like basically how much information can you soak up in your algorithm and kind of hide it from the, the output. So, okay. but, but, you know. And I guess the unique thing about them is you've got two functions, one that can produce this output, another one that can take the output and regenerate the input from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Very, very low level math. I mean, it's just, it's, and again, it really kind of boils down to the harder the algorithm is to crack, the better the algorithm is, like the more complicated it is, right? So like you could have a really simple algorithm like, the key ends up being like you shift the character by three or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Like a, a simple rotation, right, or something like that. But so simple, not very, not not very complicated from a from a math standpoint, but also really easy to break. So that's where the complexity of these things come into play. Is that again, they're trying to increase that sponginess of it. They're increasing the entropy of it. They're it's more. It's they're also getting to key lengths that are. Obviously, the the more bits that are there, the more possibilities there are, which makes it much harder to do from a brute force attack. So that's why, I mean, I think the original DES was like 56-bit encryption, and then triple DES is three times that, right? And so AES was 128, and then, you know, now the standard is 256-bit. So more... 
I mean, I know it has something to do. So what I think we should do, because I know it has something to do with prime numbers and I, and I know that there's some sort of like intuitive way of kind of understanding what, what's happening. So maybe we can come back to that in the next episode and just just spend two or three minutes in the next episode explaining kind of at a high level what's happening in some of these algorithms. Because I think it'd be interesting for people mm-hmm. um, without getting into the details of the math. But And then the other question I want to answer that I, I imagine we're not quite ready for is I have not fully understood how we do things like make sure that something that's short is just as you know impenetrable as something that's longer so if you have you know a tweet and you encrypt it well that's only going to be like 256 characters max or 240 characters max so what are we doing to make sure that it's really impenetrable because 240 characters doesn't seem like that many to be guessing or even fewer sometimes like you know if you have a chat transcript somebody might answer with one word what are we doing to make sure that, you know, if somebody keeps answering, yep, that we're not able to be like, oh, now I can see what yep is, right? So a couple of those, I'm kind of curious if we can have intuitive answers for in the next episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of that just boils down to how you use encryption, right? This is more like up to the to the application itself and like what's important. So, you know, in that particular case, like you may decide that you do it in batches or something like that, right? To kind of add to some randomness because the algorithms themselves, like again, you're feeding them some input, it's going to give you an output. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you always, if the input's always going to be, yep, if that's all it is that you just keep encrypting, then that may be information, right? I mean, it's just going to be the same, mm-hmm. the same cryptographic, you know, output, like with a, with a, with a hash function. Some of these, in, I, I don't know specifically. I mean, some of these encryption schemes may involve randomness in the form of like time or something like that as well, and that would feed into it, which might might kind of help there. But yeah, but yeah, let's, let's revisit. Cool. So that's so that's symmetric key encryption. And so again, the key part there, no pun intended. It's <laughs> kind of hard to say that right with that without using the word key. The important point there is that both parties have to have that key, right? So so the big limitation with symmetric key encryption is how do you securely get that key to everyone that needs right. to be able to, to read it, right? And that's where it gets kind of complicated. That's with the management of it with, and then also just worrying about like what happens, you know, will that get exposed? Yeah, um, I think it's good to say that it requires trust, I think. Like in order to truly have symmetric key encryption, you have to have some, at some point, the transaction of, of handing keys to each other involves a little bit of trust. You have to trust somebody. Like there's actual personal trust involved in, in Yeah, that. I mean, the, I think, I mean, a really probably good example is passwords. Like sharing your password with someone, like better trust them, right? Right, right. Uh, so, but in order um, for us to have a conversation, so say you and I want to want to have a symmetric key conversation with each other, we have to exchange this key with each other. We have to, at some point, figure out a way to trust. Yep, it's really me, and I'm really giving you the key, and now we can talk over it. And, and like that, I, I'm bringing this up because I think that's a good segue. It's going to be our segue into public key, which mm-hmm. gets rid of that requirement. Yeah. So let's talk. Let's talk about public key encryption, which is also known as asymmetric key encryption. So in this particular scheme, right, we have this would be common terms like people have heard before, right? Is that you have, you have a public key and then you have the private key, mm-hmm. right? So the public key is, is published. Anyone can see that. And that is generally used to encrypt messages. The private key is only known to the, the receiving party, right? To the, to basically the owner of that, that key pair. 
so they're the only ones that have the the private key. So when you do this public key private, so when you so someone wants to send a message to you, they they go first and find out, okay, well, what's your public key? And so they get that. They now use that to encrypt the message, and now the message is sent right to the user. So basically that part's not secure, right? So anyone can see that message, right? And everyone, the message won't necessarily be secure because it's the public key used for encryption is known to everyone, right? But what happens is only the person with the private key can actually read the message. Right. Right. The decryption can only happen with the private key. And this is this is the the, the public key, private key, the math behind it, it is this is this is based on prime numbers, right? And that's how those two things work together is and where the math is involved is it has to do with 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 prime numbers. Right. So that I mean that just makes it possible for for people to be able to communicate with me without me knowing who they are and without even trusting that they are who they say they are. All it, it lets them give me a message that only I can read. And that's so important. Like I think one of the best use cases that that's happening all around us today is just, you know, whistleblowers getting information to journalists. Who knows who the whistleblower might be or wh- what they're working for, but they need to be protected. And the journalist wants to tell that story. And so the whistleblower will use a, that journalist's public key to send a message that nobody else can read. So maybe they can tell that a message got sent. Maybe they can see the gibberish, but nobody else can know that the whistleblower is saying, you know, this important secret meeting took place between these public figures. Only the journalists will be able to tell that that's what happened. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And you kind of hit there some of the other issues with like just trust and identity and, you know, making sure that the the public key that you're using is indeed who you want the recipient to be. You know, that's, that's kind of important. So kind of examples of public key encryption implementations are SSL, TLS. So the key fundamental encryption method for the web, right, is, is public key. Other ones are like RSA. PGP is probably one of the first implementations of this, which stands for pretty good privacy. And that was back in the early 70s. So again, public key encryption, a big, big improvement where you don't want to share secrets amongst parties, but yet you can still set up this this guarantee that only the the, the, the intended recipient can actually read the message. Mm-hmm. And there's one even further thing that that we don't have in our outline, and I can't describe it very well, but I can assent, I can give basically the gist of it, which is being able to sign something with public private key cryptography. Essentially, a person, if I'm wanting to talk to you and you don't know who I am, I'm going to use your public key to encrypt some stuff and send it to you. But I also want to prove to you that I really am who I say I am, or at least that I have that the key that I say I do. Because, I, I mean, I guess somebody else could have gotten my key, but but that I really do have that key. So, And I can do that by signing the message that I send to you with your public key. And I can't remember exactly how that works, but essentially I, what it boils down to is that there's some way that I can use my private key and your public key in a way that only I could do. It's like basically encrypting my own 
public key with my private key or something like that. But basically nobody else could do that but me because I'm the only one with my private key. And mm-hmm. and on your side, you can see, oh yeah, it must have been must have been John that did that because when I decrypt that, when I decrypt this with my own key, my own private key, I can see that it turns into his public key, which only he could have done. So it's essentially basically like giving you my public key in a way that only I could do. And yeah, I, I don't yeah. I don't know exactly how that works, but that mm-hmm. that's super key to making sure that people can not just have conversations without trusting each other, but also kind of identify themselves. Like I am who I say I am. Yep. Yeah. So, so signing of, of secure messages or any messages, basically it's kind of like the reverse and exactly what you just talked about. So, and that's a way of kind of a, a further check to kind of say, yep, this is coming from some, whoever it is that I expect generated this message did do it. And so it's, in what we just talked about with with public key encryption, where the sender uses the public key to use the encryption, with when they sign it, they use their private key for the encryption, mm-hmm. and so the recipient is using the public key to decrypt the signed portion of it, and it's using mm-hmm. their own private key to decrypt to get the actual message contents. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and the key here isn't knowing exactly how the sausage is made, but knowing kind of what what the use cases are. Because obviously, you know, listening to this, you might be like, "Oh, Chris and John certainly aren't encryption experts." And no, we never claim that we're encryption ex- experts. But I think we know enough to keep ourselves out of trouble, and we know enough. Like, I think as a developer, like if you're making decisions on how to do something, how to implement something, there's sort of a an area where you need to know at least this much to make sure that things are safe and that things are that the data that you're you know when you tell your client or you tell your boss like this is safe like we've done our, we've done the best practices like you need to get yourself above that but then you know as in everything there's diminishing returns so why haven't chris and i gone and and why aren't we able to tell you every every detail about each algorithm it's because it really isn't relevant to our day-to-day job. It doesn't actually, you know, it's not something that we would make use of day-to-day. So it does. So we'd rather spend that time, that same time, you know, learning about new features of AWS or learning about different aspects of business or what have you. So it's kind of like getting above that threshold. And that's what we're hoping to do is like get you sort of to our level of, of understanding cryptography with these three episodes and then you should be all good absolutely yeah so i think you know kind of the good good stopping point for this for this particular episode and next time i think it'll be fun to just to kind of dive a little bit deeper into the practical implementations of encryption and kind of just doing a walkthrough like how do these things work and so things like tls ssl like what's really going on there how, how does that actually work and, and generate secure web traffic look at like how do you do secure point to point communications where servers don't can't see the actual message because it's encrypted that the encryption decryption is between the the recipients only and how do you handle the case where if you have multiple recipients which is kind of kind of an interesting situation and we'll also get into like the practicalities like what happens in the real world it's not symmetric key encryption versus public key encryption it's usually you use both of these and there's reasons for doing that because one you know, public key encryption is very computationally expensive. Symmetric key is, is much less so. So how can we use these two together in concert to have a really secure but also performant way of communicating? Very cool. Looking forward to it. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week, Chris and Rich. See ya. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash 73. 
If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.